Good morning. Good morning. What a blessing it is to be here with all of you this morning. I believe we're all here this morning because the abundant grace is our God. And I believe that through... And it's my prayer that through the proclamation of his word, he would allow our love and affection for him to grow exponentially. Today we'll be continuing in the sermon series titled, God Is. And as the two brothers who came before me aptly said, we are not trying to define God as he is incomprehensible. Instead, we are going through God's word, looking at who he says he is, so that as his children, we may respond appropriately. These past two weeks, we looked at how God is both incomprehensibly great and unmistakably almighty. Today, we will look at the majesty of our God, or to fit with the others, God is majestic. We choose the term majestic because, as you'll see in a moment, we're going to be comparing two kings. Now, admittedly, the comparison is weak. The first king is Uzziah. He, re- he began his reign at the age of 16, and he reigned for 52 years in the nation of Judah. During his time, the nation prospered, and the people experienced the great plenty. The end of his reign, however, he developed a skin condition, thought to be leprosy, because he blasphemed the holiness of God. It should also be known that throughout his reign, the people of Judah continued in their rebellion of God by worshiping idols. The other king we're going to look at is King Jesus, and the the remainder of the text focuses on this king. Before we begin, please bow for a quick word of prayer. Lord, we know your word is pure, and it is your holy word spoken out by you, profitable for teaching, rebuking, and correction. So Lord, it is my prayer that you would use your word in those ways in our lives so that we may be made complete in Jesus and equipped for the good work which you set before us. It's in your son's righteous name we pray. Amen. Today we'll be in Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 3. And as you turn there, allow me to read. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. Before you lose your place, I'd like you to bookmark it, or maybe just keep it open, because we're going to be referring back to it pretty frequently. As I mentioned before, Isaiah is contrasting between two kings. One of them is Uzziah, mentioned in passing, while the other is the Lord God. And he will be the focus today. Today we're going to attempt to break down and analyze what God has put in his word, displaying his majesty, so that we may respond correctly. To help direct us, I present us with two questions. Do we believe God is majestic? And if we do, how should we respond? As we go, I encourage you to pray and ask yourselves these questions. In verse 1, we read that after the death of the king, Isaiah looks up and sees the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne. Already, Isaiah is giving us a contrast. The first king has now passed away, yet when he looks up, the king is on the throne. The king who is on the throne, we know from Revelation 1.8, is the Alpha and Omega, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. You see, there's something special about the presence of this king. When Isaiah looks up, 
he finds himself in the very presence of God. Brothers and sisters, do not be misled into thinking this is some meager thing. Isaiah is in the presence of God, the one true God, the King, the Lord, creator of heaven and earth. You want to talk about baffling or just mind-melting? In the Gospel of John, the disciple ends it in this way. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which, if every one of them were written down, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. Now this is said about Jesus, the incarnate God, the Son of God who represents the Father. So if what Jesus did and who he was could not be contained by a volume of books the size of the world, can you imagine what it must have been like to see his Father? This is the Father, the very God who spoke the world into existence, the God who gives breath to every creature and to you and me. You see, as we'll see, this, there's something special about the presence of this God. And he tells us this in Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. We are incapable of grasping the way God does things. He is too lofty for us to fathom. There's a reason why the psalmist writes in 51.11, Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. It's because there's something special about being in the presence of the Lord. Let me ask you, why was the Garden of Eden great? It's because God dwelt with them and was among them. Why did King David go through all the trouble in 2 Samuel 6 to bring the ark of God into Jerusalem? Is it not because in Exodus 25, verses 22, we're told God's presence can be found enthroned between the cherubim and the ark, so that just like Obed-Edom's family, he could be blessed by being in the presence of the Lord? Luke 1, verses 39 through 43, we read, In those days Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah, where she entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped inside her, and she was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So may I ask you, why did the baby leap within Elizabeth? Could it be because the baby realized he had just entered into the presence of the Lord? Let me pry just a little bit here. Why is hell so bad? I believe we'll find the answer in Luke 16, 22 through 26. There we read that a great chasm separates those who are with God from those who are not. In this passage, Jesus is clear that one of those places, Sheol, is a place of torment, while the other one is a place of good. And why is that? It's because hell is a place separated from the presence of God. And so i got to ask another question. Why is heaven great? And I think we already know the answer I'm going to give, so instead let me ask you, why do we want to go to heaven? If I'm honest with you, this is a question I've had the answer wrong all my life. You see, I've realized that we don't want to go to heaven because it's a paradise where God wipes away all tears and he, we no longer experience pain or sorrow or grief. We don't seek heaven because it's full of good things and apart from bad things. 
While this is true, if we're seeking heaven for this reason, we're missing the best part of heaven and the reason for all the other good things. St. Louis Crossing Church, we should be seeking heaven because it's eternity with God. Brothers and sisters, do not miss this. If we seek heaven for the wonderful things we're going to experience while we're there, we will enjoy heaven no more than we enjoy life here today. Heaven is heaven because it's where God is. Real heaven is being in the presence of the God and majestic ruler of the universe. The next thing that stands out about the person on the throne are the words of the seraphim. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. Right away we notice that the word holy repeated three times calls to mind the harmonious unity of our triune God. However, I'm not going to get into the complexity of that. So instead, let us look at the messengers themselves. The seraphs, their name meaning burning with passion for God, are finding themselves in the presence of God with no job to conduct. They're beings made by God for purification, yet they find themselves awestruck in the presence of God who does not need purification. Instead, they just cover their eyes and cover their feet and shout, Holy, holy, holy. The very beings that were created have no job. God is not requiring in the slightest purification, least of all from creatures of his creation. So what are the seraphim trying to convey by calling about God's holiness? Well, it should first be noted that in all of God's word, the term holy is set aside explicitly for God. And this makes sense when we understand that the word holy means set apart. In layman's terms, they're saying God is set apart. But to grasp the severity of that separation, we must look into his word. In 1 Samuel 2.2, we read, There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. No person can be set apart the way God is set apart. And he tells us this in Isaiah 40.25. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Asks the Holy One of Israel. God makes it clear that no one can be set apart like he is. So now let us find out why. I believe Job sheds some light on this in chapter 34, verse 10, saying, Therefore listen to me, you men of understanding. Is it possible for God to do wrong or for the Almighty to act unjustly? We know that we ourselves are not like this, so already God is far set apart from us. Yet no verse makes it clear the Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he might lie, or a son of man that he might change his mind? Does he speak and not act, or promise and not fulfill? God is set apart because absolutely nothing in all of creation can hold a candle to him. For although we are made in his image, Isaiah tells us in 64, 8, Yet, Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hands. As creation, we will always be far set apart from our holy creator. God's holiness may be most obvious, though, in his son. Matthew 1, Jesus is born of a virgin, fulfilling the prophecy, so that even in his birth he is set apart. Matthew 4, while we all fall prey to the temptations of Satan, Jesus alone remained true to God. Yes, brothers and sisters, we know that Jesus is indeed the 
best representation of holiness because he alone was able to bear the cross and wrath of God that we deserved so that we could be forgiven. Holiness is a term reserved for God alone because only the triune God can embody the essence of it. God is set apart because he's God. He is the creator, existing without beginning or end in perfect harmony with the Son and the Holy Spirit, being himself the source of all the glorification he deserves. Folks, there's no other way about it. The king discussed in verse 1 is a human, incalculably far from holiness. The king Isaiah saw, the Lord, is the only person worthy to be attributed with the word holy. As we read on, we'll find one more quality that is essential to our understanding of the majesty of the Lord on the throne. We're back again in verse 3, and at the bottom we read, His glory fills the whole earth. Now, if you'll notice the contrast from the first king, in 2 Chronicles 16, we read that Uzziah spent the last portion of his reign in exile with a skin condition. He died and was buried with his father's. Kingship fell to his son, and that was about the end of it. And I don't know about you, but there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of glory going on there. So instead, let us look to the king Isaiah saw. We're told his glory fills the whole earth, and we know this to be true. From Genesis 1.27, we read, So God created them in his own image. He created them in the image of God. He created them male and female. Notice that it is emphasized we are created in his image. And then right after that, we read in Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. The current population of the world is rounded to 7.8 billion people. 7.8 billion people filling the earth with God's image. That is glorious. In Revelation 5.13, we're told, I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and on the sea, and everything in them saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Now we see that his glory is not restricted to humans. No, no, no. Far from it. Everything in heaven and earth is shouting praises of him to his glory. And just when we think it can't get any better, it does. He's got a son. Jesus. In Isaiah 9, we're told about him. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. And when we get into the New Testament, we're able to behold how the Son uses his life to glorify the Father. Jesus brings glory to God, his Father, by giving up his life on a cross so that he could redeem all of God's people to him. Jesus glorifies the Father by atoning for our sins with his blood. The truth is apparent. One king has a temporary, meager glory, if we can call it that, while the king has glory upon glory upon glory lasting throughout eternity. If I've lost you, let me try to make it a little easier. After reading the first three verses, we're faced with a contrast between two kings. The first king, Uzziah, is easily understood, while the second king, God, is much more complex. 
to help us understand the majesty surrounding God, I ask us two questions. Do we believe that God is majestic? And if he is, how should we respond? I hope that now we have an answer to the first question. When Isaiah looked up and saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, he saw the Lord whose presence is eternal, whose holiness is unattainable, and whose glory is insurmountable. And I'm left with no other conclusion than to say God is truly majestic in every sense of the word. Now that we've established God is truly majestic, we're left with only one reasonable question. How should we respond to the majesty of God? I'm not going to belabor the point, but I will say the words should respond were chosen intentionally. If we truly believe God is the majestic ruler of our lives, there should be a response. Put it another way, if we do not respond to this truth, then we do not believe that it is truth. To help us remember the ways to respond to God's majesty, I'd like to use the acronym AWE, standing for Approach, Worship, Exalt. As we go, you may notice that each of these three words correlates with the three attributes of God's reign. Because of God's presence, we approach him differently. Because of his holiness, we worship him specifically. And because of his glory, we exalt him only. The first one we'll look at is approach. Have you ever noticed the way we approach someone says a little bit about the relationship and the respect we have for them? For example, I would approach my parents differently than I would my boss. I would probably approach my cross-country coach in a different way than I would the President of the United States. And so it follows, if we're going to approach the Almighty Lord God, we're going to want to do so in the appropriate manner. So please read with me again the first three verses, and let us see how God says we should approach Him. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of His robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him, they each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. Immediately we notice the seraphim in God's presence are humbling themselves by covering their eyes and feet. And this humility is exactly the trait I believe we need to display when coming before the Almighty Lord to understand why, why do the sheriffs even show humility? We must look at who we are in light of who God is. I'm not going to go back to Genesis and recount creation, but it all begins there. It's absolutely essential to our faith that we know we are creation and He is creator. One more key piece of information comes in Genesis 3, the fall. Our sinful nature made us enemies of God. In Isaiah 1, verses 2 through 3, God shows us this truth. Listen, heavens, and pay attention, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I raised up children and brought them up, but they rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's feeding trough. Israel does not know. My people do not understand. See, the simple truth is, we approach God humbly because we're undeserving of his presence. Romans 3.23 says it all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
We are unworthy. We are unworthy to be in the presence of our holy God. Let me take it another step further. Aside from being wretched, disgraceful, and sin-filled people entering into the presence of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, we've got another reason for humility. Jesus, in Luke chapter 22, 39 through 42, we read about Jesus in the garden. He went out and made his way as usual to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he told them, Pray that you may not fall into temptation. Then he withdrew from them a stone's throw and knelt down and began to pray. Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. If the holy, perfect Son of God humbled himself before the Father, we've got no choice but to do the same. In fact, we should consider it the utmost blessing and privilege to be honored with the ability to do as Jesus did. No one will say it better than Paul the Apostle in Philippians 2. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, so that as a man, and then he, as a man, he humbled himself by become, becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. We approach God humbly because of his majestic grace that he showed us through Jesus. Getting back to the text, we notice that the seraphim are calling to each other about the holiness of God. If you remember the acronym ALL, we're now going to discuss the way we worship God in light of his majesty. Allow me to paraphrase from a book titled, Does God Care How We Worship? by Ligon Duncan, the Chancellor and CEO of Reformed Theological Seminary. In it, he suggests, how you worship God is determined and determines how you understand God. So I'd like to do something a little different today. I'd like you to close your eyes with me. Think about God. Think about a God whose spoken word created the whole world. Think about a God who knows you so intimately he knit you together in your mother's womb. Think about a God who loves you so incredibly much that he sent his only begotten son to die on a cross, taking the wrath that we deserve so that we could be shown his grace. As you open your eyes, I have to ask us, church, are we worshiping this God? Many of you may say, I absolutely am. Maybe I'm just confused. Because when I look at the worship in the Bible, and I look at the worship we do here, it doesn't seem the same. So where's the disconnect? I believe it's from our hearts. We know that Jesus tells us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, and all our mind. But I guess then maybe we forget if we love God this way, we must worship him this way. So what does that look like? In 2 Samuel 6, we read about King David leaping and dancing before the Lord with all his might. This is the same David who is so enraptured with God's holiness that in Psalm 96, 98, he writes, 
Sing to the Lord. Sing to him and bless his name. And singing is not restricted only to the Psalms. Exodus 15, after God leads his people out of Egypt, working miracle after miracle, we read this. Then Moses and the Israelites sang to the Lord. They said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him. My Father's God, I will exalt him. The people of Israel are in such awe of God, they can't help but sing. The Lord has become their song. And worship, you see, worship stems from the heart. It stems from pondering God and thinking about all he's done in our lives. Then the Holy Spirit wells up within us a love and an adoration so great for God, we can't contain it. Singing is a mode of worship, but the worship itself is a wholehearted adoration for God that comes about because of what he did for us. It's the worship of our lives, too. In Psalm 118, 24, we read, This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I know that not every day is sunshine and butterflies. But every day, let us stand in awe of God's majesty and allow it to lead us to worship. The final thing we'll notice as we read is the exaltation of God by the seraphs. If you're following along with the acronym ALL, we're on E, exalt. Exalt means to raise to a higher regard. And if you've been listening, you should think, this is, this is problematic. Because God himself is as high as it gets. You can't be raised higher than God. So then how should we exalt God? I believe we've got no other option but to look to the cross. Jesus exalted God by giving up his life to God, which means that as children of God, bought at a price, we've got no other choice but to do the same. I think the Apostle, the Apostle Paul had a good understanding of this when he wrote Philippians 1.21. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Or again in Philippians 3.10, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. What caused Paul to say all this? It was because Paul was blinded by the majesty and glory of King Jesus on the Damascus Road. After that, everything changed for Paul. The realization of who God was led him to say things like, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. But it's not going to get any more obvious than the words of our Savior Jesus in Luke 9:23. Then he said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. God cannot be exalted above himself, but that does not mean we should not exalt him. Instead, just as the Son gave his life up to exalt the Father, so we too surrender our lives to exalt our God. As I conclude, I'd like to take us back to the original questions I asked. Do we believe that God is majestic? And if we do, how should we respond? You see, there's always going to be two kings to choose from, and Uzziah will always be around in some form or another. There's always going to be another king seeking to sit on the throne of your heart, 
because it could be athletics or your job or your favorite hobby. It could be your family or your favorite charity. Because the truth is, as Brother Sean showed us two weeks ago, idols can be anything. And they're always trying to be the king in your life, in my life. So the question is, do we believe that the King Uzziahs are majestic and worth following? Or do we instead look up and see the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne and know the truth that God is majestic and worth following? If anyone is listening to this message today and has not chosen to surrender their lives to the majestic king of the world, I urge you to do it today. There is no time to waste because Jesus, he is coming back and he is going to judge the world. And if you have given your life to him and you have made him your savior, you will be saved. But if you have not, then you are going to spend an eternity separated from the presence of God. If we have made Jesus our King and Savior, then the second question applies to us, and it's no more easy than the first. If we truly believe that God is majestic, then we must respond. So although there are a lot of correct answers and ways to respond to Jesus, I've chosen to use the acronym ALL. Approach, worship, exalt. The sheer perfection of God's presence requires a humble approach. The purity of his holiness invokes a wholehearted worship, and the dumbfounding nature of his glory leads to the exaltation of him through the surrendering of our lives. Brothers and sisters, let us pray. Majestic God and ruler of our lives, in the silence of our hearts, we bow before you. Lord, we know that we are unworthy for your holy name to even part our lips, unworthy to call upon thy great name. We know that we only do so today because of your grace and the atoning blood of your son, Jesus. Father, we know that our lives are under your authority, but today we would ask that you would help us submit to that. Lord, may we humble ourselves before you today as the sovereign king of our lives. Lord, to your name be glory and power and honor forever and ever. Amen.